Welcome to the Kickstart Podcast, where we highlight the stories of how professionals kickstarted and navigated their very successful careers. My name is Preston, and on this episode, we have the pleasure of hosting someone who has an amazing career working at some of the most well-known tech companies out of the New York City area in a product role before he decided to build the next generation smart collar for dogs. Jonathan, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me, Preston. My pleasure. So I think a good place to always start off is just asking you, for those who are unfamiliar with who you are and your background, would you mind just sharing a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, I, I'm, I'm French. I grew up in Paris. Uh, I came to the U.S. about 15 years ago. Uh, I stayed in my, my career here in New York in a, in a startup. Um, I was a head of product and engineering. And then a few years later, I moved to San Francisco. Uh, started a, a company called Pins. Uh, that company got acquired by Square, and then I was one of the product lead at Square for a few years before uh, starting Five, which is my current company back in New York. Wow, that's a very great, concise, very efficient summary of your background. A couple of things come to mind. So you're from France. Uh, has it always been your intention to come to the States, live here, have a career, or did you ever plan on going back to France? No, I actually, yes, pretty early I decided that I wanted to move to the U.S. I think the first thing is that when, when I was studying computer science back in France, I always kind of like admired the research and, and everything that was happening in the U.S. And so after my undergrad, I was actually offered to come to New York and do a master in computer science. And once I was here, I, I don't know, I was just bit by the bug. And once you have the virus, it's very difficult to go back. I mean, everything is just set up here for building amazing technology company. Yeah, for sure. I did not know that you did a degree in, in comp sci. Was it your intention uh, initially to be an engineer? I just think I was just curious about, you know, learning mm. and discovering new topics. And um, I went pretty deep on the, on the computer science side. And at some point I discovered that there were other domains that I was actually interested in, you know, and, mm. and business in general, I think it's kind of like an, an umbrella term under a lot of different things, finance, marketing, you know, product development, product management, execution in general and engineering. And I'm still doing a lot of things that are extremely technology related today, but I, I really enjoy learning and, and developing competencies in all of these different aspects. We're certainly going to talk a lot more about technology and obviously your current company right now, but I have to ask, were you always interested in technology? I know that you obviously went to a degree, you had a degree in college in computer science. Is that is that always kind of your plan or did you also have a couple of jobs in different industries and you're like, you know what, I actually want to go and follow the tech route? Yeah, no, I'm one of those who touched a computer when I was like 13, 14 years old and that, that was just, it's game over. First five minutes, <laughs> couldn't get my hand off it, open the computer and needs to understand how it works, start programming. And that was just it. I love it. So you came here, you went to school, you found yourself uh, in New York, and then you mentioned you went to the West Coast. Is that for school yeah, or sorry, was that for a job? No, honestly, I, I just wanted the experience. I spent a few years in New York and did that first startup experience. And then I was, I was going to start my own, my own thing. I got my green card. So finally, I could start my own company. Mm. And I had an idea for this app. And I, I just wanted to go in Silicon Valley, San Francisco, and learn about everything that was happening there. Oh, wow. And then you decided to come back to New York, but not stay the yes. West Coast. You don't miss <laughs> the beaches and the sun and the perfect weather. All year round? No, not really. I was in San Francisco. What you're describing is not really how it is there. Mm -hmm. 
but uh, no, I listen. There are some parts that I really enjoyed. Uh, obviously, massive techno technology ecosystem, a lot of very very competent people there. But I also realized that lifestyle wise, I really enjoyed the the East Coast uh, more. It was just a better fit culturally for me. And I was lucky enough that by that time, New York, Boston really emerged as like kind of like close secondary followers of like Silicon Valley and San Francisco when it comes to building technology companies. Like there was capital available. There was a lot more people, a lot more engineers, designers, a real culture of building things here. And that only only been progressing in the same direction over the, the next few years. So it was like, it wasn't a massive impediment for me to move back to New York and actually try to like start my next venture here. Mm, that makes sense. And so you were able to touch upon it a little bit during your intro, but you dove right into the tech industry and your first couple of jobs were in the product world capacity. So can you just walk me through, I'm just curious, like how did you end up in product? Is that something that uh, you want to do? I know you had a comp side degree. Maybe you were interested in other aspects, other types of jobs in tech. Like, uh, walk me through that. Yeah. So in the meantime, I went to business school. So mm. I did my master in computer science, and then I worked for a few years. Then I went to business school. So I was in Chicago, and after graduating, I I worked in strategy consulting for a little bit. And when I decided to go back to to the startup world, it was really interesting to me that I had like all of these other things behind beside engineering that I knew about now. And that, like, so what was really cool is that I had the understanding of the engineering side so I could interface pretty easily with the engineers and know what they were talking about and kind of like think about the rest of the business and organ I think most of the time what you're seeing in, in startup is that if there is a massive disconnect between what engineering is doing and what the rest of the business is trying to drive then that runs into a bunch of problems and I think with me being an engineer and me having that kind of like business knowledge and at least developing some business knowledge in parallel um, I was kind of a good bridge mm. between those two worlds you know and and so I sat in between kind of the CEO uh, at the time and the engineering team. And I was able to kind of like say, okay, I understand where you're, what you're trying to do. Now let's translate it in a roadmap and in things that engineering can execute against. And so, yeah, it was kind of like natural for me to sit there. That's cool. I think product is one of the, the coolest uh, tech career track that you can have in tech. And a, a lot of product folks today either have a very robust business background, others have a technical background, and others have a hybrid kind of like you, where you're able to just leverage a lot of your experience and be school consulting and a comp sci degree and really kind of create that perfect storm where you're able to really be hands-on and create exciting products at really great companies. So I think that totally makes sense. And then walk me through, how did you find like your other, the other subsequent product roles? You had a chance to work at some of the most well-known brand recognized kind of tech companies in New York. So like were a lot of the times through referrals that you applied, did you use what maybe you worked with a headhunter got you in, or maybe you just used your own network, like for someone who wanted to or wants to maybe follow in your footsteps, uh, perhaps after college and wants to dive, uh, dive straight into tech and have a successful career in product? Like what was your thought process? How did you find the companies? How did you get in them? Yeah, I think most of it was driven by uh, my own network. And so usually you are, uh, by keeping in touch with people in your network, like you, you see these opportunities progressively emerge, but uh, it was also a lot of uh, serendipity to be honest. Um, I remember even the, the opportunity with Square emerged of me getting a drink with a buddy from business school that I mm. haven't seen 
in like two years prior to that. And he had no idea what I was doing in the past. I was like, oh my God, you need to talk to my boss. Like what you were doing is super interesting for what we're trying to build now. And then all of a sudden I was introduced to Gokul. And then he was like, hey, I actually want to bring your whole team inside. So like, it's just things happen really fast. I think people don't want to underestimate in general the, the power of these individual connections and how that can just light up something really fast. Mm. Can you just walk me through like what is, for people who are unfamiliar with product just in general, like what, what was your day-to-day like as a product manager? Obviously you, you, just broad strokes, generalization, uh, but in case people are curious. I think, yeah, I think we need to be careful about the terminology as well because product really means something different for every organization. And I strongly believe that every organization doesn't need the same type of product, product manager and product function in general, right? So I would say there are a lot of things that needs to happen to go from ideation to execution of something, right? Of a product in general, right? So like you get kind of like the upstream, you have the business thinking and like the strategic thinking, let's say, like Mm -hmm. where do we want to take the company? What do we want to do, right? That usually translates into some kind of framework. OKR is like a pretty like typical framework used out there, right? So like let's say from the strategy elements emerge your objectives, right? And so like you're saying, hey, like the business, we need to focus on growth and maybe be on cost cutting that's it Mm -hmm. right like and so these two big areas will like kind of like be broken down into more specific aspects right so like let's say we want to focus on growth like we're going to start a track that is focusing on organic growth increase right and we're going to start a crisis you know like a track that is more focused on like building viral loops inside the product and things like that right Mm -hmm. and then there is a whole part of ideation happening there right and then from ideation we'll kind of like be extracted different projects that will eventually constitute a roadmap be prioritized next to each other according to different criteria and then like like pushing this project to the loop of like design and engineering and actually executing and running on this project and then like closing the loop by continuing mm-hmm. to iterate on this project, right? Um, so I think this is obviously a lot of range, right? And so like the, depending on the organization, like product can start from the strategizing to the road mapping to being more from the road mapping to the execution side, right? And I tend to call the downstream product manager, project managers, because mm-hmm. it's much more about like defining how to do things and what to do. But I think there is a place for everything. And uh, in the end, it's mm-hmm. about what is right for the organization to be successful, you know? So for example, some organizations have like business units who are doing most of the strategic thinking and market research and all of that, right? Some others really push that on the product side to do this research and to interview users and all of that. So like, it really depends on the capability of your company, how you mm-hmm. want to structure it, what you believe is the best function for executing like it also maps to your business processes right so for example i was a head of product for handy handy is a very was a very operational heavy type of organization right we we're sending cleaners to homes and so when most of the operations of your organization are like this they're a little bit like untied to your technical product right and so we had a whole like business unit really focused on just following up operationally on things and, and KPIs that needed improvement, right? In other organizations like Square, where product was really integrated with the business thinking, right? Like product was like working with a business unit that was much more integrated to do market research and kind of like making sure that the product was in line with the market needs, right? So like really every organization is different and, and as it should be, you should craft your organization to be the most efficient without forcing a product function where it doesn't need to be, right? Yeah, I, I appreciate you clarifying that and it's 100 true product can mean completely different from one company to another and then how you 
defined product can also mean completely something different from one team, one company to another. So I appreciate that. I'm just curious, when you were going through your career, what part of that process from upstream downstream were you most excited about? Like, what, did you did you, did you like the strategy kind of uh, upstream? Did you like more execution tactical downstream? Did you like kind of touching a bit of everything as you kind of progress through your career? Yeah, personally, I really liked everything. Uh, mm. I, I liked, I obviously liked the strategy side and defining what to do, right? I really enjoy the ideation phase that goes from like, hey, here's what we need to achieve and here are ideas of projects that are just, mm-hmm. you know, pure ideas on the board. And, and I also honestly really like to push out of the door and get the gratification of seeing features and products mm-hmm. in the wild. And I like being aggressive about it. I like mm-hmm. uh, I like short timelines that just like ship a lot of products. And be- because I think as you see your product morphing, it's just very satisfying and it mm-hmm. just creates new opportunities for you in the market that loops back into the strategy piece. So I think it's a beautiful cycle. And I was always very interested in all parts of the system. I love it. And then I, I think one more question I want to ask you is out of the, the big companies that you worked at prior, obviously kind of of running your own right now, did all of them kind of go through rapid growth before you joined? And then just for people who are unfamiliar with tech and they only know about tech through these articles or TV shows and movies from a company going from 10 to 100 or 100 to 1000, were you able to experience that as well at some of these companies? And what was that like for people who are just unfamiliar? Yeah, so the, the first one I started, we were like less than five people. So, mm-hmm. and in the next two years, we we're about 100, 150 people. So that was kind of wow. an interesting series A, B kind of like growth. I think, you know, when I got at Square, for example, we were about 600. And the year after that, we were like 1,200. And I remember Jack putting a cap at like 1,300 and said, we're not hiring one more person. This because it's hard to absorb this number of people and continue to keep like your culture intact and to keep your processes functioning and to continue actually being efficient at scaling people and we're seeing like especially now you see a lot of people cutting because uh they have overhired a little bit uh, my philosophy around hiring people is a little bit different i try to be very cautious about it and very qualitative oriented and so we're growing slowly we're like about 80 people here and we have done that over three years but i Honestly, I sense that we're shipping more things than in like organization. There are like two, 300 people that I've worked at. I, I think uh, you, you can be extremely efficient with a, like fewer people if you're really efficient in the way you actually polish the work. And so as a product manager, I think you will have radically different experiences depending on the stage of the company and the number of actors involved, right? Mm-hmm. Because the, cons- the consequences of like the things you're doing have like a different range of impact, right? Like so Square seven, eight different teams. I think at some point I counted there were about 85 people involved on the project that I was like trying to lead, right? And so it's a lot of actors, a lot of different teams who all have a say in the direction of the project, right? And so you're becoming much more of an orchestrator and like, a, you know, a, a manager than you are really leading like decision making on any piece of the project. Mm. And so smaller team, you have much more say in the decision making, you can move a little bit faster, but like the size of your impact and the type of feature you're shipping is smaller, right? So like, it's a balance. So talk me through like someone who has an illustrious career in product. And then when did you get the idea to, to start your current company by and like, how did it work for people who are maybe wanting to start their own company one day or people who are in the process right now, or people who may know of others who are, you know, currently trying to raise their first tranche of, of seed capital. Like what, what was that like for you? Did you, uh, again, leverage your network to start inter- introduction conversations with investors? And then what about your product? Like, did you create your own MVP, if you will, to test it out with friends and family first? Like if you can walk me through that, just the early days to reminisce together, that'd be great. Yeah. I think uh, the answer 
story is very different depending on the type of company you're trying to build, right? If you're building, in, in our case, so we're, we're five, we're building a smart collar for dogs, right? So mm -hmm. there is like hardware involved. There is like a, a lot of like a long cycle development involved. So there is a little bit more of a leap of pace that's necessary up front, right? You need to jump on board, do probably a year or two of R&D and then ship your product in market, right? So it's a little bit more risky and that makes it a little bit more a little bit harder to raise capital in the early days because investors don't like super risky assets, right? That's a little bit different. But like for most companies, like software-based companies, I think there is an easy way to be able to like build, you know, MVPs and test a lot of things in the field and acquire your first customers and learn from that and, and have a pretty high level of validation that there is demand for what you're trying to build. I think for people who aspire to be entrepreneur and start something, like the real answer to that is just do it. Like I understand that people have like you know visa constraints financial constraints like we cannot leave their job etc like there is a lot of time on the weekend you know like it's two days a week it's a lot you can build a ton of things over the weekend and test it during the week and then iterate the next weekend learn to build what you can i often have people come to see me and and ask me for advice on how to raise capital and like what really strikes me is that when i when i ask them what they would do with the money they actually don't know right like everybody's kind of like focused on like hey i need to raise money to be able to start my company i have this idea about this product and i'm like okay cool let's say i'm writing you the check right now it's in your bank account what are the next five things you're going to do and the thing they're actually describing don't require the money mm -hmm. so i'm like just go for it you know and so i think you know money is a resulting like i guarantee you if you do all of the things that you can do without money and you execute successfully on it when you need the money the money will be there extremely mm -hmm. easily from investors you know but coming with a deck and waving it around and raising money i mean in good market conditions maybe it works and it's great but like you'll always be better for your own time and investment by trying to do a lot of things on on your free time you know what inspired you to create fight to begin with i i know that uh it was obviously a personal, uh, a personal kind of problem or, or personal thing that you want to address, but what inspired you? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So I mean, my inspiration is my dog, of course. Uh, <laughs> uh, I got Thor about six years ago now, and I was already kind of like thinking about starting my next things again in mm -hmm. the spirit of like learning new things. I felt like I learned so much during my first experience building a startup and then selling it and then working at bigger companies and then investing a little bit in the meantime. I learned so much about the ecosystem that I felt like as a second time founder, I would be so much better at it. Mm -hmm. uh, I really wanted to start something again so i was kind of like playing with some ideas and then i get my dog and then i just identified so many things missing in the mm. in the dog pet space in general in the dog space more particularly and there was really no tech company in that space and i really like the greenfield kind of space like this where by just building really interesting bleeding edge tech you can create a lot of value and what happens that one day so i hired this dog worker to work in because i was in my day job and the dog worker started lying to me about how far he would walk him and all of that and i had the camera at home so i was able to see when he was coming back and that and i was like oh it's really upsetting because you give your dog that you love to like someone trusting them and you know it's it's really upsetting to uh to not be able to like trust someone with something so valuable and so i was like that's kind of that would be kind of cool if i just put like a gps on the dog and track the dog and there are a bunch of products already existing in the market so i bought kind of all of them and none of them were really doing a good job and I think coming from my previous experience at Square, I kind of like, I could spot like what was the problem with that space. I think there were like a bunch of technology ch challenges that like most of these companies were not resolving the right way, in my opinion. 
and had a few ideas on how to improve that. So I kind of like built a small prototype with like components that were available, strapped it on my dog, sent him out with the dog walker. And just, I gotta tell you that feeling of being able to just take the phone, see the map and see that location update in real time and actually having like a clear picture of where the dog was for the past two or three hours and number of steps. And I was just, it was just very magic. And, um, and I was like, okay, this is just, if we build something that delivers that to every dog owner out there, things are absolutely going to create something. I love it. it. It's such a great founder mentality. It's like, ah, oh, I'm dealing with a personal problem. And instead of relying on someone else, you know what, I'm just going to create something myself. And your whole company, it's basically predicated on this very personal problem that you're fulfilling. And, you know, your first, I guess, milestone was seeing your, your dog Thor walking with this uh, walker, but then now you know exactly where they're going. So that person yeah. cannot lie to I call you. That, uh, I call that the founder's blissful naivety. <laughs> As a, <laughs> you need to think that you're, that like that exact sentence at some point, you know, that it cannot be that hard to do X. It's actually extremely hard, but you need to have that naivety to think that it's not that hard so that you can just start working on it. And then what, once you're working on it, you have to be stubborn enough to not let it go. Yeah, I love it. I love it. So how do you go from now creating that to be like, you know what, I should maybe just bet on myself fully again and start a company around this? Because surely someone like yourself probably had other plan B or plan C ideas you were ideating at that time and maybe yeah. tinkering away with. And for like most of your background working at these big companies, a lot of them were just software companies, right? So to go from a lot of software-based companies to now be like, you know what, maybe I should build a product in the space dogs i don't really have that much experience in other than my own pet but also then you know to think of like oh it should actually be not just a pure software product but also have a hardware element to it at what point you know you said earlier really well at some point you just have to have faith and just have action and just go but like yeah. when did that happen yeah i think it's a very good question because uh one of the things that i struggled with was especially when it comes to early stage startup ideas you will always find a reason not to start that company mm. right and the reality is that there are a ton of reasons, right? By definition, the odds are against you a little bit. So it's like, if you want to objectively look at every single idea out there, whether it's Airbnb, Uber, or any other massively successful company, you can take that pre-launch and destroy this idea pretty easily with some pretty hard assumptions, right? Mm -hmm. And so there is, there has to be some kind of leap of faith at some point. I think what was helpful for me is on one side, in, in between Square and Handy, I did a, a little bit of investment with a group and I learned a lot from these guys and we had some kind of a matrix to evaluate the ideas. And it was like, is a market big enough? Is there a drastic competition in the space? Like, and there, there was a lot, like kind of a laundry list of things that every idea we had or every pitch we would receive to kind of run that through these kind of objective criteria to, to evaluate them and, and kind of like to, to at least clear them, right? And that, that's one that helped me filter out a lot of ideas, right? You'd be surprised about what great ideas you have and there's probably nothing happening out there. And then you look around and there is a company who reads a hundred 50 million who has like a two billion dollar valuation doing exactly what you're describing you know so it's like this kind of things is like really important i think having like a clear framework on how to evaluate ideas and develop it progressively so that you know you run out of these reasons right of objective reasons right the second thing I, I was doing is that i had a few friends of mine who are in the in the vc space and well they evaluate ideas all day long right so i would pitch them my ideas not pitch them to raise money but actually just to like tell them hey what do you think about that right here's something i'm playing with right and sometimes they would tell 
tell you, oh, I've got like five or six other startups who pitch me the same thing the past year, right? Or like, and all of a sudden it brings you back to earth a little bit and you're like, okay, well, there's maybe a reason why, you know, this team didn't execute properly on that. Or maybe that idea always ends up in this other place, right? And there's a pivot happening, right? But I think the other thing that is a bit more subtle is that like you start developing the, hey, are they actually excited about this or not, right? Like, is this, so you start getting a barometer of where it was going, right? And I remember distinctly, I, I pitched one of my friends that I respect a lot, the, the idea for the GPS tracking guy, and I brought my prototype to the meeting and his reaction was completely different than any other ideas that I brought to him. He was like, oh my God, this is really good. I think there is something really great. Can I introduce you to my friend who's investing in that space here? I would love to write the first check. Like the whole thing completely changed dynamic, right? And I think it's important like to realize that whether it's in your network, people are going to be, this is a great idea. This is very great, right? And like there is a massive difference between that and like, hey, can I give you $1 million to start this tomorrow? <laughs> because, you know, yeah, I think uh, so. So I think this kind of happened. And then at some point, I remember I kind of ran out of reason not to do it. You know, I, I was like, okay, I can always find a reason not to do it. That's pretty easy. But then I, I can't really find any reason not to do it. <laughs> I was excited about the space, excited about the product. I knew the uh, upside opportunity was worth my time and effort. And yeah, I didn't know all the craziness that was coming later down. But, uh, but I think at that stage, that's what really helped me make the decision. You know? I, love I love it. Did any of the initial investors in your network that you just pitched the idea to, did, did any of them ended up investing later down the line? In um, I think... Well, so, okay, what happened is that the original investor was like super excited, but introduced me to other investors. And then that round ended up like getting done very fast. And then mm -hmm. when he came back to invest, it was kind of too late. So, so that didn't happen. Uh, that didn't happen that way at all. Like the, the, some of these initial investors didn't invest directly, but they certainly like introduced me to people who ended up investing. So mm -hmm. that was definitely there because some investors have like some very specific verticals they're investing in. So like, you know, healthcare, things mm -hmm. like that. So, I mean, this is another, a clear example of you just leveraging your your relationships and, and network you did it before to get really great jobs you're doing it again to just get really great feelers from qualified people and it's really good always great to have vcs and investors in your network or as friends but i think it's also really and by great. the way i think uh, sorry to interrupt but i think it's something very important to note here is like the, you can reach out to investors and develop this relationship just to get advice and feedback on ideas mm -hmm. and not to raise money because if you just contact investors and and if it's is to raise money when you have a deck and you're very actively trained to sell them, well, they get a little bit defensive. They're under mm -hmm. pressure. Do I want to feed that in my channel? Things like that, right? But if there are like social introductions or people that naturally get into your network circle and that you solicit like, hey, I was playing with an idea. Would love your feedback on it. Wondering if you heard other team pitch this thing and like, what are the strengths or weakness of this type of, idea, of, of space, you know? I think they are much more amenable to meeting with you and have a very informal conversation about your thing, you know? And that's helps you build these relationships. Yeah, it's, I think it's a trap to try to make this, like people are kind of like touch feel when it comes to investors, like, oh my God, I'm just, I need to make this very valuable when it's a conversation. And so like, I'm only going to reach out when I want to raise $5 million. Like, no, like this is hard to get that meeting, <laughs> you know? I love that you said that at the end of the day, investors are people like anyone else. And you kind of want to see, see yourselves in their situation. If you're just coming in hot, 
expecting to take, 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 coming in super aggressive, it will very much turn a lot of people off, including yourself if someone did the same thing. But I think like partnerships or business development, sales, even cultivating new relationships 101, right? It's you always hear that cliche thing. Don't ask off the bat, always ask if they can give you advice. And then maybe that can become oh, an opportunity down the line. And 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 as cliche as that is, I mean, this it's just clear as it is uh, from your own experience and how it helped you so much and getting this idea vetted and then just giving you the green signs um, and the thumbs up to move forward. So I definitely appreciate that. And I, I totally agree. And I totally vibe with that. Cool. I mean, it just sounded really, really on the surface level, very, very easy that you're able to come up with this idea. I know it was a quite a process. And then I just want to fast forward a little bit. Would, I don't know if you can or, or can't share. That's totally cool. But would you be able to share like, did you have like one big seed round? Did you have like a couple, you know, pre-seed rounds? Was it, you know, one big tranche or, or, or a couple of different ones? And then as a second question to follow that, who were your first couple hires? Like, were you at this point, were you all alone as like the sole founder? Did you have a technical founder, uh, another co-founder kind of running aside with you? Like how, how did the early days start? Yeah, that's interesting. So yeah, I was on my own. I didn't cough on that with someone right away. Actually, my co-founder, Lauren, was introduced to me by one of our first investors. So I, I can tell that story in a little bit. But I think overall, when it comes to taking money, again, I think every company is different. Every story is different. And in certain environments, in certain industries, like you're able to step in and say, hey, I'm, you know, I want to raise $2 million on my deck and for a $50 million valuation, whatever. If you can do that, good for you, right? The way I, I try to think about it is like fundraising is about milestones, right? And so if you ask for money to investors, you want to be able to take that money and show what you execute with that money so that when you get to the next phase, you're like, okay, like, I know that if I reduce milestone with that money, I'm going to like not only be in a good position to raise money, but I am also going to be able to demonstrate that I can use the money people give me to execute and process. And so I think it's important to have like a kind of forward vision of what is happening. What are like kind of the milestone of the business and what investors or group of investors map on these milestones, right? So like I'm in a consumer subscription product type of industry, right? So like the, for me, the main milestone, number one, is like developing the product, right? Number, number two is getting to market and showing that there is product market fit and traction for the product, right? And then number three is going to be showing that the actual unit economics and dynamics of the business makes sense to scale this business, right? Mm -hmm. So like my typical for hardware type of company, my typical seed round is going to be, okay, I need money to develop the product, which means I need to sell that investor on the vision and the team, right? Mm -hmm. And then I'm, you know, with the vision and the team, I'm going to be able to, let's say I get that money, I'm developing the product and then I'm ready to go to market. And I'm going to show that investor, that investor the product I built and I'm going to like show them that this product in market is actually going to generate product market. And then the next stage is going to be, okay, now we have been in market for a year or two years or something like that. And here are all the metrics that I can show you to show you that this product actually works and that this business is worth, is worth scale, right? And so now, now what I need to convince you is that I'm able to put together the team and the infrastructure to actually scale this business uh, gracefully. And so I think every founder needs to try to map out the journey for its business based on like the model it's playing in and try to understand what they're going to need to demonstrate at each step and work backward into, okay, this is the amount of money that I need to mm. be able to do that. So in our case, the first round of money was like a small angel slash early investor uh, round of like, I think $350,000, $500,000. And the idea with that was just to put together a prototype of the product and 
hire kind of like the key hires on the team to be able to like step into a seed investor office and be able to say, hey, we have the market, look at this prototype and we have an amazing team to execute on this. And that's what we did. So like the first, you know, that first round was maybe less than 500. And then we, we raised our seed round of like, I think it was 2.5 or something like that. And then with that seed round, we're able to develop the whole product, hire more people, get everything ready, campaign, marketing campaign, strategy, go to market, all of that prior to launch, supply chain, etc. And then we raised 7 million to launch a product in market for the first year, year and a half. And then we raised another 25 million when we were able to show that the metrics around the business were actually making sense and we could scale that. Wow. Thank you for sharing. I, I think what I took away from that and for people who are listening, if you're unfamiliar with the funding rounds and how they work, it's very easy to be like, hey, this company raised X amount for the seed, X amount for series A, or even X amount pre-seed or friends and family. But I think you, what you are able to do really well is just break down each time, generally speaking, if you raise money, there's different types of goals and milestones and expectations for each round. The whole point is you want to raise this amount of money to do what? And I think for someone who's starting a brand new company, especially in the early days, you have to be crystal clear exactly what you're using that money for versus, as you said, a lot of founders out there who just put all their money in making a fancy schmancy deck. And then when they get the money, they don't know exactly what to do with it. Right. So I thought that was very cool how you were able to kind of outline all the different kind of thought process and milestones that you are like prioritizing with each round getting you off the ground. And I think that's super, super cool. And I appreciate that. So that's the early days. You found your uh, co-founder through an investor relationship. That's amazing. And then now you're a team of 80 people, which is incredible. And so going back to your company, Fi, it's a smart collar for dogs. I know that the product itself does a bunch of stuff, but when you were starting out, what was like the first kind of feature you were working on or you, you released? And then what were the subsequent features after that? And then what does the product do now? Yeah, sure. Uh, so the, the first feature was very clear. People wanted to know where their dog is at any point of time. So that was the exact kind of like use case that I had with my dog worker. It was not that I needed to know exactly when the dog was with the dog worker. Is that my dog is extremely valuable emotionally to me. So I want to know where my dog is at any point of time, at any time from anywhere, right? And having that on my phone was just like a superpower. And so that's the very first feature we ship on the product, right? And the complexity is to realize this, you need to be able to use technology like GPS, cellular communication, things like that, because your dog might be in the woods, right? And if your dog is in the woods, there is no Wi-Fi to be used. There is no Bluetooth connection or anything like that. So at this point, you power GPS to get the location from satellites and then you power a cellular communication antenna to actually be able to connect to a cellular radio and like you know like a cell phone does connect to a cell tower and send that information back to the network to deliver to your cell phone and so that's not easy <laughs> that's not the easiest thing because you're basically building a small cell phone that you're putting around the neck of a dog that needs to be waterproof that needs to like hold tension and all the roughness that goes around the life of a, of a dog you know and so a lot of mechanical choices a lot of mechanical challenges and then all the electronics that goes into building a small cell phone, basically. Did it take you quite some time to ramp up to learn these new technologies or did you like lean a lot on your technical co-founder and the technical hires that the early ones that you brought on board? Yeah, I think in the early days, I definitely started ramping up on ramping up on all these technologies myself. But like these are not things like I quickly discovered that these are not things you can just pick up and become an expert at. Like, you know, as an engineer, I feel pretty comfortable programming and like you can jump from one programming language to another one and say, oh, cool, a new platform. You know, I was developing iOS apps. Like, like, it's fine. Like, you can jump on a new type of platform and start building things, right? When we're talking about, like, embedded firmware driving specific, like, chip 
upset and radios into doing very specific things on a network, mm -hmm. that's not something you're going to win on the weekend, right? Um, so I was lucky enough to find Lauren, my co-founder, who is an amazing engineer. He was a chief architect and lead engineer at Dropcam. And Dropcam get like probably at the time the most successful hardware story with a sale for like half a billion dollars to Google. I mean, his capacity of like building this type of products and, and you know, early early version of the products like on his own was very, very impressive. And then we started ramping up like the emerging new technologies and making architecture and technology choices in the space around type of networks to use, type of operators, like chipset selection, things like that. And then, you know, I would say, yeah, I... I Hiring the right people earlier and, and having experts on board right from the beginning helps you make the right decision because like the, I would say one of the challenges of hardware is that ba bad decisions are very costly, right? Like yeah. they're costly in time, in money, in like you cannot iterate on your product very easily, right? It's not like software where like, oh, we build it this way, just rebuild it that way, right? There are long cycles of development, so uh, it's a little bit more costly to make mistakes. And in our case, being able to attract really good talent early on was really critical to our success, I think. For sure. And so your first your first priority was to, to really lock in that kind of GPS capability so mm -hmm. you know the location of it. So what did you kind of ship afterwards? Uh, maybe, I'm sorry? I guess, what was the second feature that you worked on after that? Oh, yeah, yeah. So it's pretty clear. Another feature that people cared a lot about was kind of like the health component for their mm -hmm. dog. So like the next feature we, we shipped was a simple pedometer where like you can track the steps of your dogs. So every day you can see, oh, my dog just did like 25,000 steps today, you know? And then I think more importantly than knowing the exact number of steps, like having a baseline for an owner to be able to say a normal day for my dog is about 22,000 steps, you know? And oh, today we're at 17. Let's go for an extra walk in the evening. It's something that was already very kind of like actionable for an owner to do their best job at like keeping their dog in good shape mm -hmm. um and so uh, that the next feature we launched and then we started to gamify this by like creating rankings so people could see how they ranked versus other dogs on the network and then immediately we saw the power of connecting these dog owners together right because all of a sudden you're not alone in this world as like a dog owner anymore you know about all the dogs in New York City and you're able to compete with them and I can tell you how many times I'm just sitting at a restaurant and someone's like randomly pulling their phone and be like I'm number seven in Brooklyn you know <laughs> and, and that's amazing I love that you know that's 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 incredible. That just reminds me, it is a little bit off topic, but how important is it for a consumer-facing product, a direct consumer-facing product to have an aspect of community? Because for someone like myself that also works with a lot of other really great physical uh, consumer-facing kind of e-commerce related products in New York and other great kind of hubs in, in New York City, it's very easy for them to just blow up in terms of scale or just scale very quickly and they just pump money and, and just paid search and paid social without thinking about the back-end community aspects or anything like that. And then they're able to spike and then kind of fizzle out at the end. And so how important is it for you to be able to kind of foster and create a robust community for a company like yours that continues to grow? Yeah, I think community can definitely play a role in growth. Uh, you leverage the right way. Uh, I think uh, these two products are a little bit disconnected though. Like I think there are healthy ways to grow businesses. Um, and I think what you're describing is probably in a, in a healthy way, but, but there are tons of ways where you can just market a product based on a very single function that does a very good job, you know, like AirPods, hundreds of millions of units out there, there is no community attached to AirPods, mm -hmm. right? But I think communities offer a different type of experience that definitely contributes to the success of the business in like other aspects. And 
yeah, I think they have a lot of potential when it comes to network modes, creating more value for the user, diminishing attrition, like all of these things. But they're a little bit disconnected from like, hey, can you actually build value in a product that is, uh, or, or do every product require a community to actually continue mm -hmm. to grow in a healthy way? I don't, I don't think that's bad. Gotcha. I appreciate that. So you mentioned that compared to other companies that were, that might've been overly aggressive when it comes to recruiting goals and they might've grown a little bit too fast. And that's why they're hurting a little bit now. And with the current market conditions that we're in right now, you chose to be a little bit more intentional and cautious. You were still able to grow a company into 80 people across three years, which is still no small feat at all. How has you as a leader and the company, the internal culture had to evolve as the company continued to grow? And a follow-up question to that is, we'd love to understand internally, what are some of the main tenets and principles or values that you and the team kind of do or work for or follow yeah. or I guess implement or integrate in your work every day? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely not a short answer, but uh, I would say that um, it's important to acknowledge the fact early on that your company is going to be a growing organ, right? Like the plants that are behind you, they're going to grow and they're going to change as they grow, right? And seeing that work when you're 10 person, start not working when you're 20. And it's not that you started doing, doing something different, that the setup changed, right? Like the rules of the game just changed, right? And so what you want to do, I think, is like, uh, first, acknowledge that it's a learning exercise and that you don't have it figured out. At least I know I don't. And so what you want to do is kind of observe the organism as it grows and kind of just take notes of like, what are the things that work better? What are the things that work worse at every kind of step of the way? So that you can readjust for the things that are like degraded by the new organization and try to like make them a little bit better, right? Mm. And so, you know, like the, the typical thing that you hear from founders who like transition from like a small team to a larger team is like, oh, we used to be really scrappy and do all of these things super fast. And now it feels like we're dragging our feet and, you know, we don't ship that fast anymore. Well, like, like what changed really? It's not that your people became lazy. <laughs> it's not that you became lazy. It's not that people don't work the same amount of time at the office because there are more people, right? It's just like, you just, you just change the rule of the game and you certainly have the potential for that fire hose to become bigger than it was before, but it doesn't mean it requires no work to actually be able to like make it happen. So you need to acknowledge that change is going to be necessary in the way you work so that you can actually leverage these extra people that you just hired, right? Uh, and that's why I think it's so hard for companies Companies just hire like when you hear companies are hire like 300 people in one year, right? How do you take the time to actually absorb these people and change your organization to actually make them valuable, right? And what usually happens when you pick up engineers or like other people who worked in this organization, like, yeah, we're 300, we felt like we were 40, right? Mm. Because everything is like still functioning like when they were at 40 people. And so you just throw more people at the prime, just so get more cooks in the kitchen. It really won't make your operation more efficient, you know? So I think that's the, that the contrast. Like I think there is, like for any process, you need some time to absorb new hires and absorb growth in a healthy way so that you can actually leverage that into more output for your company. So that's number one. Sorry, what was the other part of your question? I forgot. The, the second question is, why should somebody... Oh, what was, what was important for us internally? Mm -hmm. I, I think one of, uh, uh, one of the quotes of Peter Thiel to the Airbnb team early was, uh, don't fuck up the culture. Uh, and, and I think I think that stuck with me. I think up to 
starting this company, maybe like two experiences prior to starting this company, I substantially underestimated the importance of culture. People think that it's kind of an afterthought, uh, but the reality is that this, it's really not only the North Star, but the philosophy of your company and how people function on their own and what they allow themselves to do in the company, what they allow themselves not to do, what they think is okay, what they think is not okay, and hiring for culture fits and developing people into your culture and maintaining that cat so so important because that's what makes the 80 people team as manageable as a 10 people team is because everybody's thinking the same way and everybody's driving by the same kind of like incentive and value driver and that's funny you mentioned values because i still kind of like under this i wrote our values and i discussed them a few times with the team but i realized there was not there were some flaws in, in our process like i i never asked for these values to be integrated for into our onboarding process for example so in the past year, we doubled the size of the team and we had a bunch of people who actually didn't know we had values. And I didn't realize that because you know what? We're on Zoom and we're a little bit more disconnected than before. And if anything, like this kind of like uh, remote or semi-remote environment we have been on for the past two years, definitely made developing and maintaining culture harder. And so we just last week, we had what we call Unify, which is our yearly event where we fly everyone to New York and we have a week of presentations and uh, about the business and social events, outings, restaurants, all of that. It's really fun for the whole team to actually be together and hang out. And one of the main asks I received prior to Unify was like, hey, we want to talk about the values. We want like get reminded of that. We want to discuss them. We want to understand exactly what they mean. We want to understand better what it means to be a good five member. And so we had a whole session about values. And honestly, it was super interesting, super engaging. And I think having a core set of values that you really feel people connect to and that they respect help really help people do a great job and be proud of the work that they are doing and wake up in the morning and be excited to come to work. You know. Would you mind sharing what some of those values are? Yes, uh, top of my head. I mean, the first one is really about ownership. We are an organization that gives a lot of ownership. And so the number one value that I'm asking everyone to have is that like, what if your function in the organization was your own business? Would you do exactly the same thing that you're doing this morning when you work, right? What if this is actually your business and Phi was your only client, right? And that's the success of that operation is life of death for you right it's like mm. you know it's like personal failure if you fail and it's personal accomplishment if you succeed right like try to put yourself in that mindset every morning and ask yourself would i do anything different than what i'm doing today right and i think that's the core value of ownership right it's like hey if you were your own boss in your function if you were to make every decision and there was no like hey i did my best today if there was if it was like a pure function of your own drive and you were to own all of your activity what would you do and if it's not what you're doing just bring it up let's start pitching it let's start changing what we're doing so i think it's just like the number one for me is is entirely about mindset mm. and and I think values also don't hold if you say that, but then you don't follow with actions, right? So like we give a lot of ownership, right? Every person in the organization here can really behave like they own their own function and make their decision and, and function on their own. That's what we're looking for. We're trying to like hire people that we can elevate into owning the function and entirely run with it, right? Whether it's in marketing, finance, engineering, whatever, you name it.
right? And so I think it's about the empowerment of the people into owning their own function. And I think this really helped us self-select people who are very entrepreneurial driven, who uh, like to work and own a function, don't come to work just to do a job and leave at 5 p.m. Like they're just, you know, it's about satisfaction of doing the job right and polishing details and things like that. And I think you get that for free as soon as you frame that value as like, hey, this, this is how we think about what we are doing today, right? If you get that, then you get all the rest for free, right? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that, I would say that's one of more or, or more important value out there. Wow, I love it. And if you're curious, if you're listening, what the other values are, perhaps they should apply it to find one of these days and figure it out. <laughs> um, do you? So, I as I'm talking, obviously, if you're hearing this, you don't see that uh, Jonathan's sitting at his office. So, uh, my next question is: Are you a hybrid situation? Are you? a flex some sort of flexible variation of hybrid as a founder navigating these conditions post pandemic recession ongoing dynamic talk of remote versus in office like what is your take on that very complex very complex issue it's pretty clear that the pandemic taught us that there was some efficiency to be gained about le letting people work from home in some way shape or form right it's less obvious but i think becoming obvious to everyone that it's a double edged sword that it's pretty clear that having people work from home all the time decrease the quality of the interaction between people, especially new hires who never actually had for interaction with anyone here in person. But also like missing creativity, like getting in the same room on the whiteboard has value that just you cannot really replicate through Zoom. So, and we just talked about culture, right? And it's like culture also get driven by what you observe your colleague, how you observe your, your colleague behaving and the decision they're making in the work they are doing and how they are doing it, it becomes extremely hard to have people train other people because, you know, you take, you hire a senior engineer and a junior engineer, and you want that senior engineer to train and elevate that junior engineer. Good luck doing that through Zoom, right? People are sponges, right? And they absorb what, what's around them. And so I think there are definitely a certain level, uh, uh, level of challenge associated to this. I think the way we are trying to navigate it is by learning again, being flexible, experimenting. We are trying to be more to fit each function to the type of requirement we create in the company. So for example, like for customer success agents, uh, it doesn't make any sense really to try to get them in the office like 24 seven, right? Like these people are like much better at home. Uh, we can hire them anywhere in the country so we can cover more time zones. They can take phone calls all of a sudden because if I have like 30 people here taking phone calls with customers, that becomes chaotic. It's impossible to make happen, right? So like either at home, they can take phone call even if it's not part of our core support function, like we can make this happen a little bit more easily. So there are definitely some advantages to be able to like leverage there. I think you also created some uh, interesting dynamic in the workforce where people, a huge category, I mean a huge category, a substantial category of people just decided that their job was not their priority in life and want to explore the world and just have a job to finance that. And let's call it what it is, right? And it's totally fine. Like I totally respect that approach. And I just, for the type of company we're building, I don't think that type of people we want to have here i think that's more for like if you if you're a contractor or you're a freelancer graphic designer wants to travel the world and have a lower type of implication in the long-term mission for the business and lower integration into you know the things you're building for the product there is some intricacies there that i think become extremely inefficient when people are remote so we have some kind of a hybrid system where some people are remote some people are in new york people in new york are required to be in, a, in the office four days a week they can take one day to work from home and we have found that so far it's the best balance to kind of like keep 
people feeling like they have more personal time to be able to adjust their work sometime to their personal life, but at the same time, keeping the commitment high and the culture alive and the interaction between the people here in New York pretty high. But again, I would say it depends on each organization, each culture, mm -hmm. the type of work people are doing. Totally understand that. For us, there's still a lot of creative work happening on the whiteboard together mm -hmm. in the same room. And like that's extremely difficult in my experience to replicate remotely. Well, I know that uh, we're coming short on time, but just have a few more questions. And then, of course, we can let you go and uh, continue run Phi into the <laughs> stratosphere, Jonathan. So moving forward, what are some positions you think if someone's listened to this, like, wow, you know, I very much resonate with your culture and your values of ownership. And I just love animals and dogs. And hopefully I can join and work with you one day, one of these days. What are some positions you think you're going to be hiring into the future throughout this year or maybe next year? And if people are interested, how are they or how can they apply? Great. Um, well, listen, we are... As I said before, we're very kind of like particular in the way we hire, which means that we actually always hire for every position. Uh, we're just very opportunistic about it. And when we find the right people, we just bring them on board, even if the position is not really open officially or like we're not, you know, starting for this type of skill or um, or functional operation. But I think the easiest way is just to go on trifi.com slash jobs. We have all of our active jobs listed there. But you can also just email talent at trifi.com, T-R-Y-F-I. And we look at your resume and if we think there is a great fit with what we're doing, I'll absolutely start a conversation. If someone had a dog or dogs, how important would it be for them to include a picture of that in their resume when applying to Listen, we, we do have a lot of candidates and, and a lot of hires who did that and it totally works. It totally works. <laughs> That's a hack right there. If, if anyone wants to work for Fi, if you don't have a dog, go and quickly adopt one and uh, take, a, take a high res picture. What about people who are like, you know what? I actually have a dog or multiple dogs and I could use a product like five, where can they buy one? And then is it like a one-time upfront fee? Do they have to pay something per month? How does that work? Yeah. So the same thing, you can go on tryfi.com, T-R-Y-F-I.com and they can buy a color there. The color is $149 and it's most of the time discounted to $79. And then there is a $100 a year subscription for all kind of like GPS service, advanced features, cellular networking, all of that. Amazing. And what is the future for Phi moving forward, Jonathan? What really excites you uh, as you look into not just the end of this year, but next year, next couple of years? Obviously, there, there's only so much that you can you can share, but you know, is there anything that uh, you really look forward to or something that really kind of gets you out of bed every day? Yeah, sure. I mean, listen, there is a, there is a lot of new product developments happening here. There's a lot of uh, software features that we're shipping pretty soon. The, the company keeps evolving. We just hired a VP of data and data science because at this point, we're processing something like a terabyte and a half a day of data streaming from these colors in the field. So there are obviously a lot of this information we can use to build new, more interesting, more refined features for dog owners and for uh, you know, the dog community to be able to understand these animals. Because I think one of the things that really drives each and every one of us here is that, you know, like dogs are very, very spe special relationship to humans, right? It's one of the only interspecies relationship that has really, you know, developed for the past 500 years, right? And there is so little we know about them, right? Like the, the way we develop medication, the way we develop or understanding communication, the way we interact with these dogs is still very primal, you know? And so what 
the, the reason why we build the five color is obviously, yes, track dogs, make sure they don't escape, save them, etc. right? But uh, I think the key to us building the color was really to be on the dog 24-7 and start collecting all of that data about the behavior of the dog, right? And start leverage technology to actually become some kind of interface between the human and the dog. Because if I can start qualifying the movement of the dog, the sound of the dog, the acceleration of the dog, the, the, the overall behavior of the dog into something that is digestible to a human and be, hey, your dog is stressed, your dog is like, needs to go out, it's not, didn't work enough today, this kind of things didn't sleep well last night, you know, we do sleep tracking now, then we really elevate that relationship between the human and the dog, right? And and that becomes something really magic. So that's like, that's my goal for the next few years is bring that to the masses. Uh, we're scratching the surface of the 100 million dogs in the US. And so my goal is to put that as fast as possible on more than a million dogs. I love that. And just uh, to end this podcast, I'd love to ask you two more questions. So the first mm -hmm. is for someone that has worked at phenomenal companies in tech in a product role, for someone who wants to aspire to have a successful career in product, or maybe someone that can learn a thing or two about maybe finding, applying, or succeeding at really great companies as a job, uh, what would it be for you? If you can give one advice. Just do it. <laughs> I think don't wait for people to tell you the right time. Just jump into it and start doing it, you know? And the second question, and your response could still be very much the same, is for someone who wants to just be a founder, right? And start and build a really successful company, what is one advice that you would like to give to the listeners? Like start building, you know? Identify what's the need out there, build something people want. And uh, yeah, just really start, start doing it because until you do it, it's not happening, you know? For sure. Action, action, action. 100%. Jonathan, thank you so much for spending a couple of minutes this evening and chatting. I mean, I found this conversation very insightful and uh, very valuable. And of course, we could talk for much, much longer on everything. But uh, I, again, want to take your, uh, thank you for taking your time. And um, I, I really appreciate the fact that you were able to just wonderfully outline your 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 professional career from graduating business school to working consulting, to working in product, to a lot of different companies now building FI uh, to the company that it is right now. And I am super super excited personally to see where you and the team uh, will be in the next three to five years. But if you are also as excited as I am and you're excited about Phi or you want to try Phi out for your dog or maybe one day apply to Phi, definitely uh, reach out to Jonathan and the team, tryphi.com. If for any reason people want to reach out and reach out to you directly, Jonathan, where can they find you? By email, jonathan at tryfi.com. Just works. <laughs> Well, you heard it from the man himself, uh, someone who is just crushing it and doing super well in the world of dogs. And I, I, I am just emphatic and excited to see how the product will continue to evolve uh, to bridge the relationship between dogs and humans that much closer. So Jonathan, thank you so much again. We will certainly keep in touch and feel free to reach out to him and his team anytime you like. But Jonathan, thank you and wish you and the team the best and most of success moving forward. And can't wait to see what you guys will do. Thank you, Preston. Really appreciate it. Perfect. Thank you so thank much. You so so much for listening. Make sure you subscribe for other great stories that are coming up. If you need any help with hiring, know of anyone who's looking for a job, or would like to be a guest on this podcast, please feel free to reach out to us at www.kickstartfinder.com. Really, really appreciate it, and we'll see you on the next one.